Thank you, sisters and Harriet, who is a sister by heart. Um, all righty, Mike. You know what time it is. It's time for questions and answers. Does anyone have any questions while we have this up? Um, if you have any, raise your hand, and we'll come around with the bowl and, and start adding. We have quite the list right now. Uh, before we do, though, I do want to read real quick from First Peter as Mike picks out his first one. Are these already in the computer? No, we're going to say them and then she'll put them up as we read them. It'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> if not, it'll be fine. <laughs> All righty, and um, just want to real quick read from everything's going to follow in my Bible now. From First Peter three fifteen. Um, make that fourteen and fifteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Um, and right there in verse 15, he talks about having a good reason for the hope that is within you. And that means that we have to have reason. <laughs> we have to be able to know who God is. We have to know um, what it is that God has done in order to present to everyone, okay, why do we have hope? When we suffer, why do we persist? Why do we keep on be- believing in the faith? Well, the only way that we will continue on is if we know who God is. If we know that God is a good God, that he is a God who can do miracles, who can save us and has saved us. And so when we do these questions and answers, our goal is to know more about God. <laughs> it's to know more about what he has done and, and to really enjoy that. So, Mike, you can go ahead and pick out the first one and then you start. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay, this one's on top. Ooh, Genesis question. For in Genesis 1 1, God created heavens and the earth. How? How many heavens are there? That's a two part question. Okay, I'll repeat. You, you, are you typing these up, Jess? Okay. I'll go slow. In Genesis 1 1. God created heavens and the earth, period. How? Question mark. Question number two. How many heavens are there? Question mark. All right, so in Genesis 1-1, how he spoke. We can turn back to Genesis 1-1, but... God spoke creation into existence. If you want to elaborate something Yeah. Um, when we went over, I need to stand. I'm going to get antsy. Um, when we went over this in Genesis, we, we learned a few different things. And one of the things that we learned was how a lot of the pagan myths had that matter existed eternally. And so for them, the gods created the universe out of matter, which had always existed. Unfortunately... We don't learn that in modern science, but also in Genesis 1-1, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. There was no matter before God created. He simply, as Mike said, spoke it into existence. Um, if, If it's hard to wrap your heads around that, just think of Jesus. Jesus with the fish and the loaves. He blessed the fish 
and the loaves, and what happened? It multiplied. It's a miracle. It just happened just by God blessing it. Um, It's like that, just on the grander scale of the universe itself. Um, But when you have a God who is outside of the universe, who is greater than the universe, who is omnipotent, that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everything, him speaking into existence actually makes a lot of sense. So... The second part of that question was, how many heavens are there? I was, I'm, I'm going to say three or more, and I'm going to look for, I'm trying to find the reference when Paul had his uh, uh, vision of, uh, I'm, I'm looking. I want, to say, I want to say Ephesians, it might be Mike, I don't know for sure, but um, I, yeah, that's my guess is maybe three, maybe more. I mean, I'm wondering if it's not like Israel itself. And if you understand Israel in the time of the Jewish kingdom back when, when it was Israel as a whole, the way that they understood the world is that, okay, the whole world was sacred, yes. But Israel, the land of Israel was holy, holier than all the other lands because it was God's land. But what was even more holy than Israel? Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was more holy because it housed the temple. And the temple was more holy than Jerusalem itself, the city. Um, And then so when you get to the temple itself, you have the outer court. And that's holier than the rest of the city of Jerusalem. And then you have the inner court, which is holier than the outer court. And then you have the holy of holies, which God dwelt. Um, And so what you have is a little circle that's the most holy, a bigger circle that's holy. And it keeps on expanding outward of holy, holy, and then holy. And I'm wondering if the heavens aren't like that, where it starts off, okay, yes, this is the outer heavens, and it's holier than, let's say, the non-heaven area. And then you slowly get closer to God, the holier it gets. Uh, that makes sense to me, but I can't be certain. We, we're not really told either, so. Okay, out of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has a vision about heavens. I'll read, beginning verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know... How such a man, whether in the body, apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Um, The passage goes on, but this is the reference I was thinking of where at least three heavens, maybe more. And uh, um, so I don't know if you want to add on. That. No, I don't, I don't know for sure. Does Roy? I've always thought just, you know, the heaven, the multiple, multiple galaxies. I mean, he, he did it all in one. He boom. Yeah, I don't think one. it's multiple galaxies, though, because. Well, guess what? Along, along those lines, when we get into Revelation 21, boom, new heaven, new earth. New earth. Mm-hmm. So, so if there's a, you know, how, how many heavens in in between the last one? I I don't know. In, in terms of our relationship with Christ, our knowledge of that is not necessary. Agreed. Agreed. 
the best we can do is guess. It's not. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you gotta take one first now. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. What is the biggest problem facing society today? I mean, the simplest answer is the lack of Jesus. <laughs> um, no care for God <laughs> at all. Um, even those who care, a lot of them are more focused on, in our society, more focused on political intrigue than God, um, is what I've seen. Here, I'll let you. Uh, we'll just put it here. Um, but another thing I've noticed more recently, apathy. And, uh, and this is weird because we seem to be a, a society that cares so much and we're so passionate about things. You go on Facebook and people are ranting and raging and showing passion all over the place. Um, but I, I mean more of, okay, I work in the factory, you know, and I have conversations with people about, about Christ, about God, about his existence. And usually when it comes to things like morality, like, okay, why, why do we have morals at all? There's apathy. They know that you can't just have relativism. They'll admit to that, but they don't want to go any further. They just stop caring. Um, also, when it comes to, let's say, churches, um, people not wanting to come out to church anymore. Apathy. Uh, they don't, there's a sense of which, okay, I can do it all on my own, which it sounds nice, but the problem is that the scriptures tell us very clearly we can't, and we're not supposed to do it all on our own. Um, the reason why you have gifts isn't for yourself, it's for the edification of the church. But people are apathetic. They don't care. They don't, they don't want to come out. They just don't want to have the energy to come out. Um, they don't want to bother with it. So that's what I would say is one of the bigger things that we're not really facing or, or that we're not addressing directly is apathy, um, which is sorrowful in a nation that cares <laughs> so deeply in a way. I would agree. And I, I guess, is that symptomatic, though? Of a, you know, we need Christ. If you have Christ, you you shouldn't be apathetic. Yeah. <laughs> if you have Christ, you better not be apathetic. Yeah. It might show something about your own heart yeah, under that circumstance. Um, I hate to be interrupted. Our pastor in uh, uh, right. Wait, so everybody else can hear you. We have a 93-year-old pastor in Hope Sound, and he frequently makes the comment, the most unpopular word in the world is sin. And that's, that is the problem of the world. Do you think that what the Bible says when God created six days, that each day meant one day and not a geological era as someday? Question mark. Let me repeat. Do you think that what the Bible says when God created six, six days, I'm, I'm thinking that, Literally, God's creation in six literal days, 24-hour days. I think this is the, the crux of the question. All right, I'll start over. Do you, do you think that what the Bible says when God created six days, that each day meant one day and not a geological era 
as someday. I, uh, I believe, I think that, yes, a day, 24-hour period, sunrise to sunrise, um, not a geological era. No. I mean, could it be? No. I'd say, yeah, I'd say not, but it's a... Uh... This is when I get unpopular. Um, <laughs> it could be. Um, uh, I'm going to say, yeah, it could. Again, I know when we went over this, the third sermon that we went over in Genesis, we discussed how there are a lot of different views on this. Tons of different views. Probably a good ten we went over in that one sermon. Um, so for me, I mean, I don't even, I don't bother with the debate. I don't think it's an, as important a debate as we've made it. Um, that's me. Because a lot of times, and I've said this before, we point our guns at each other, at other Christians who are like, okay, no, God did it this way. Um, and it doesn't change my view of Genesis or, or, or it doesn't change the view that Genesis is, is meant to be taken as authoritative. But then we point our guns at them and say, oh, well, you're bad. You're bad. And I'm thinking, that's absurd. Like, we should be pointing our guns at the naturalists, at the guys around us who are saying God doesn't exist. And yet we're fighting amongst each other about something that we all agree on, which is that God did it. <laughs> um, and so, you see, like, to me, it's, it's not as important as a debate. Now, if you were to ask me personally, what do I think? I lean towards a six-literal-day creation. I don't have an issue with that. Um, but let's say in 12 hours you ask me again, I might lean the other way. <laughs> That's how little I, I think it's that I, it matters to me in the end. Um, also, I mean, when we went over this... We have to ask the deeper questions of what Genesis is teaching us. And a lot of times we have no idea. A lot of times we have, we, I'll ask people, okay, well, what does that mean to the people who first read it? And no one seems to know because no one's taken the time to actually read any commentary on it. Um, or to read, okay, well, to that generation who was first reading Moses, for example, it, mean, it might mean something very different than what we're reading it. And that's one of the problems, let's say, well with modern scholarship is that maybe we try too hard to understand it from their perspective. Um, but yeah, like, uh, for example, you could read Genesis 1 and you could just focus on the fact that God, it's talking about a monotheistic God who created everything ex nihilo. From right away, it's going to be different no matter how you look at it. Um, versus, let's say, and it's trying to argue against a polytheistic view which has all the gods being created out of matter, for example. Well, if that's the first and foremost point is that God is one, then how many days isn't necessarily the point for them. The point is God is one. He is the only one who created all things. He didn't need lesser gods. He didn't need many gods. He just needed himself to do it. Um, and how do you say that? Well, God did it in six days. I mean, it makes sense. But at the same time, I also don't want to go and say, okay, modern science is just dead wrong. I mean, look. Look at what we have behind us. We have a screen. We have electricity. We have all this stuff that modern science has brought us. They're on to something. <laughs> we have wireless service that, you know, 150 years ago would be called witchcraft. <laughs> Let's be real. I mean, how do you get a picture on your cell phone? That's crazy to me. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. But, we, but science has brought us there. 
You know, and that's not a bad thing. I think a lot of times we, we, pri- we what we do is we make science the issue. Science isn't the issue. Take away science for a second. Ignore the scientific method, because that was started by Christians way back when. I mean, all of the early scientists were Christians because they understood the world to mean, okay, God made it so we can examine it and we can study it and we can know more about God through studying nature. It wasn't until Darwin came along and that it was feasible to be an atheist that in the end, science started becoming this thing against Christianity, but it's not. It's the naturalism behind it. You have to get to that point. It's the philosophy that these scientists are putting behind their science that is really the issue. It's not the science itself. And again, there's plenty of conservatives who we all admire who are old earth creationists. Uh, uh, Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller is an old earth creationist. He, He finds it very problematic that we don't embrace an old earth view. Tim Keller. And he's one of the most well-known conservative preachers in America. Um, John Piper is an old earth creationist. Now you have those who disagree with them. That's fine. But we can't get involved in that debate. I think it's, I think it's fruitless, essentially. And I, I think some others have heard me reference this before. In Second Peter, we have a reference... Um, where there's mockers and scoffers that Peter addresses. Hey, where's, where's this final judgment coming that we're talking about or that you know, is being preached and so forth? About the coming day of the Lord, etc., etc. And just bear with me here, and I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Okay, attention. Verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. I hold to a literal six-day creation. Could it be different? Does it matter? No. No. (laughs) If if anyone objects to my commenting, uh, please forgive me. If necessary, tell me to just shut up. But the Bible makes it very clear that God cannot lie. God created in six days. He defined a day as the evening and the morning. Now, if you go according to just billions of years in between this and that and the other, uh, I would assume that it, it sounds like evening and morning are somewhat similar. So you've got... Five billion years over here for evening and five billion over here for day. If during that five billion years of darkness, how did the plants survive without the sun to help them do all that they do? I mean, it, it, it is not okay to call God a liar, is my <laughs> Here's the problem. The sun wasn't created until later. The sun. 
So if we're taking it literally, of a, literally a sun rising and a sun falling, how can you take that literally on the first day when the sun wasn't created until the fourth day? Like, it, it, it insists upon itself to be taken differently. Um, that's what people will say. Like, you can't say that the sun was rising and setting for the first three days if the sun wasn't there. Which then you go to the problem of, okay, well, the sun was there. Well, can they, then that means God's a liar <laughs> because then he didn't create it till the fourth day. You see the problem? So there, there's so many different problems about the interpretation of the text that, again, I just find it to be not important in the end. Not productive. Not productive in the end. Like, so, uh, the only thing I want to agree with is that God did it. He created it. He was the first cause. You agree with me on that? I can have a nice fellowship with you. <laughs> I can call you brother. I don't care how old you think the earth is. I agree. We agree with that. Um, that's the most important thing to me. Um, and I can, again, I mean, it goes both ways. So, Any other comments, questions? <laughs> Concerns? How long is a day? <laughs> 24 hours. Um, <laughs> yum day. Alrighty. There was a great rebellion in heaven. Bef- was there a great re- rebellion in heaven before there was ever the world was ever created? And Mike, you might want to look this up. Isaiah fourteen twelve through fifteen, Ezekiel twenty eight thirteen through nineteen. Isaiah fourteen twelve through fifteen, and then Ezekiel twenty eight thirteen through nineteen. And how could that happen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, was, was there or there was a great rebellion in heaven before the world was ever created? And how could that happen? Yeah, that's my guess. Is what, but I want to look at the verses themselves um, as we talk. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, from uh, what we know, Yes, but the scriptures are also very vague about it. Um, even the texts that we'll look at, let, let's say Isaiah and Ezekiel, it talks about, I know one of them at least, if we're talking about the same text, talks about the king of Sidon. And that, that is a human person <laughs> that they're talking about. They're talking about an individual who existed in time and space who was a king of Sidon. And, and the text, you know, when you read it, yes, it, it lifts him up to be greater than he is, obviously. But the same thing happened in Babylon in Daniel, where the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, I believe it was, got puffed up and arrogant, and he thought, how great am I? I am the ruler of all things. How great is my kingdom? And then God said, nope, <laughs> and made him insane to prove God's point that he's nothing without God. So could that text be talking about the king of Sidon and not about some angelic being? Yes, it could be. Um, so again, there's a lot there that... Or it could be a dual. It could be a dual understanding. It could be a dual understanding. Isaiah, there's not a dual misunderstanding. I'd have to look at Isaiah. Isaiah is where Satan gets cast out. But like what, the morning star? Yeah. Isaiah. If you want to mention it. That's Isaiah 14, uh, 12. Well, yeah. 12 through 15. Um, I was going to read it. Um, all right, so 12 through 14 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. 
You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Uh, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Um, it, like now, the, the source of the question is, how can this be if this was before creation? Here's the problem. Right? Here, I'm going to pause you. I'm pausing you. Verse 4, or 3 and 4. And it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from which you pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say... Um, and then that whole thing from verse 4 onward is a taunt to the king of Babylon. <laughs> so the problem is, is that to Babylon, again, Nebuchadnezzar, who thought of himself in that way, who thought of himself higher than God, or is it about a spiritual darkness? Um, and that's the problem when you take things out of context, maybe. We get things that aren't really there, but because we're reading poetry we think, oh, well, it must be literal. But this is poetic. It's meant to be poetic. It's meant to show a person who is so haughty, so um, proud in all of his ways that he thought he was above God. And then it says, no, you're falling. Your kingdom is done. Babylon, no more. And guess what? When the Jews exited, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. (laughs) That's how they went back to Israel. Another nation came up and took them over. So again, like uh, when I read these texts, I think we need to be careful about how we read them and how we understand them because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean what we have been inclined to think it means in context. Now, I know I've taken it that way in the past, but that's maybe because I myself have not looked at the whole of what the text is saying and realizing, wait, this is talking about the king of Babylon, not about Satan. Um, but there are others who might look at it and say, well, it's about Satan too, because Satan is the representative of someone who is proud. And so if you look at someone like the king of Babylon, who is so proud, you can say, well, this applies to Satan, who is the most proud, (laughs) it seems. And that, you know, if Babylon falls, Satan falls as well. And from that perspective, you can tie it in, but I don't necessarily know or believe it necessarily has to be about Satan himself, so to speak. You can disagree. No, I, I, I agree. But, I mean, the, the word Babylon also has been used, or is used with dual meanings. You get into Revelation when uh, uh, the word Babylon is used, you, you know full well it's talking about Satan and Satan's. Well, where was Ezekiel? Ezekiel was Tyre. The, that was about the king of Tyre. Well, no, that, well, where are you at, Isaiah? This was Isaiah. Yeah, so, but still, in that time frame, Babylon was the major player. For, for Isaiah. So I, that's why I'm, I'm hesitant. Go ahead. So, uh, I think it was Lucifer. Yeah. Because he was an angel. Yeah. Of course, there were angels in heaven. Absolutely. Before everything else was created. But there's nothing yeah. in, in that text that would imply that it's about pre-creation. There's nothing. No. Where's the question? Is the question up there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Was there a great? Like, well, I'm looking at the texts that are applied. 
in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, I would say, don't apply to this question. But everyone thinks that they do. But I don't think that they do. Okay, well now, because we not asked the question, or answered the question yet. Was there a rebellion in heaven before the world was created? And I would say, yes. And I would, I would say maybe. I don't know for sure because there's nothing in scriptures that would point to it. For sure, definitively. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, yes. I think we should go to the scripture where it does tell the story of Lucifer. That, that was Isaiah. That, that's, that's what. That's what he just read. That, that's what I'm arguing. Is yeah, that's the text? Yeah. And that's where I would say if you read the whole text. From beginning to end of the chapter, it's not talking about Satan. It's talking about the king of Babylon. Yep. Could you apply it to Satan? Absolutely. But you have to read the whole thing in context. Well, it makes more sense to me than oh, well, Lucifer. Oh, yeah. But, yes, it can. But it also doesn't either, in my mind. That's the only way I could think that there would be a rebellion. I think when there's poetry, like in this case, and they're writing, talking about Satan the way that we know Satan to be, and they're describing somebody else who's bad, the king, in this situation, and that's what you do with poetry, is you can relate it to something else that you know, so that you have something to compare it to. So I would say, as far as the poetry goes, they probably did have intent of putting that thought in your mind, like comparing it to this kind of evil, whether or not it was actually about Satan when you're writing it. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that when you look at it from an application point of view, it can mean Satan, but I'm not convinced that Isaiah meant it to be about Satan. Because it's talking about when the Jews left Babylon. That was the king of Babylon that was their enemy, who took them over. But would that have been going on? Yeah. Would that before the earth was created? Well, it doesn't say. It doesn't say. It's not the earth being created. Yeah. In that text. This was a rebellion that started the earth before the earth. Let me see. Do you have that text up? It says in the beginning, God created. You know, this is how yeah. church is being problem. Oh, no, this is how we get... No, this is not... No, I disagree. No, I disagree with you a million percent. To have an open discussion and an honest question without... God's big enough to... No, no. You're uncovering tension. And relieving tension. But Jesus handled it. He's already done it. Okay. Done now, the, the, the rebellion issue. Yes, ma'am. If you and I are not clear on our faith, and if you and I are not clear on why we believe what we believe, that matter. yes, it does. No, not to God. If I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm saved. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved. You don't have to go back and argue. It's God is written. It's written. It's there. Absolutely, it's there. There you go. And that's what we're, we're, help us to learn. Help us to know. We don't need to learn that. What does it going to do? All right, can I see that? Yep. <laughs> having, 
having clarification and knowing what you believe, why you believe what you believe. the angels and Lucifer all out of heaven. We know a third of the angels. And Lucifer was down here when Adam and Eve was there because he was in the form of a snake. Agreed. All Already in the form of a snake. So we've been cast out of heaven. Alrighty. And that's part of the question. Alrighty. Alright. We're going to pause. We're going to pause. Alright, so just in regards to this, the Ezekiel text makes more sense to understand it that way. The Isaiah text doesn't make sense as much. Because um, you're right, the Ezekiel text says you were in Eden. So how could the king of Tyr be in Eden, for example? Um, unless, again, we talk about poetry. And it's meant to be understood as poetry. Which, in my mind, it is. But, again, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Because, um, thir- again, it, my concern is when it says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyr and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. And then he talks everything about that. Um, why not just say Satan? Why not just say, Raise a lamentation for this fallen angel? Why does he say the king of Tyr? Unless it's meant to be poetry to say, you were this great once, but now you're not. That makes sense to me, but you're right. It could, you could apply it to me and the devil, for sure. So that's my, my thought about it. But yes, I mean, one could argue, yes, that there was a fall at one point. There has to have been a fall. There has to have been a time when the devil went against God. That's the point of the, the question. Yes, there was. When did it happen? No idea. It could have been that moment when he tempted Eve for the first time. It could have been before that, when he had intent and God sent him down. Um, because one has to wonder, how could he have gone to Sheol, or the place where they're, they're supposed to be held, but then be on the earth? So you have a little bit of problem with that, unless, of course, he rebelled in that process. But we don't know. We just don't know for sure. No, I just did that one. I thought I did that one. Tough, you're going to read another one. Okay. Did we already get this? What are some of the ailments of our current society? Yeah, we did get that one. You put it back in? I did, I'm sorry. What What or are there different roles for men and women... Within a congregation. Okay. Two questions here. Are there different roles for men and women within a congregation? And then, I guess, what are those roles? And are there different roles? Absolutely, there's different roles. Huh? What? What did I hear you say? Huh? What What did I hear you say? I'm being a wise guy, and so are you. I know. All right. So are there different roles, and what are the different roles? Exactly what all the different roles are? Well, I know Christ, uh, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul provides the, the, uh, the church, Jesus' relationship is described as a marriage. And within the marriage relationship, there is a head, and it has, it has to do with hierarchy. Now, if, and I think we're all in agreement here on this, but um, just as 
a marriage union between a human man and a human woman. Uh, they are united, but there has to be a leader. There has to be a head. And just as the church and Christ relationship is, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the head. Now, if we want to get into discussing specific roles, um, yep, there's probably lots of room for us to get into different weeds on that one. But uh, are there differences? Absolutely there's differences. And, you know, as far as I, I have, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know if the question was intended to get a response or, or reaction out of me or us as the position or place for women as pastors or leaders or the place for women, you know, within a, within a church. I don't know if that was the intent of the question or not, or positions of leadership for women, but absolutely women have been called historically to be in positions of leadership within the church. Is that plan A according to God? I would say no. Is it plan B according to God? And I would say yes. And the reality is God can do and use whoever he wants to whenever he wants to. So we can't think about putting God into a box and uh, anyway that's my I don't know how much trouble you want me to get in trouble I can (laughs) Um, yes there are different roles and they're based upon our gifts Um, it's as simple as that and when it comes to let's say church leadership I mean that's that's a that's only a debate for our generations, as in for the past hundred years. Before that, this wasn't even really a debate about church leadership roles. Because for 2,000 years, up until our time, um, yeah, men took the leadership roles, whereas women were leaders in their own ways. So, like, um, let's say there was a, a place where a bunch of nuns were. A woman would be head of the nuns. However, they would be underneath the authority of the church, which predominantly men. Um, that's how it had always been. Now, does that mean that... I'm going to end there. We'll end there. <laughs> We're gonna, we'll end there. If you want to ask me a question about women being pastors, you can raise your hand right now, and then I will answer it. But otherwise, I'm going to go on. Dan is about to raise his hand. <laughs> Dan? Five after. Okay, so one more, and then we'll be done. <laughs> All right. All right. What is the church's role within society? I think that our role is to be the light of the world, um, to proclaim the truth of Christ, to encourage society around us to be better, to be an example of what it means to be better. Um, to be able to have loving discussions when we disagree, for example, is a way we can be better. Um, to, to realize that our world right now is in a world of especially one of intolerance, and we have to be more tolerant in regards to different ideas so long as they fall within the Christian scheme, 
that's what's most important to me, I think. I think the world needs to see us having these conversations and to say, praise God, praise your Father in heaven. Um, I also think in regards to the cultural mandate, which we talk about in Genesis and we've talked about in Total Truth, the church needs to be involved in the cultural mandate. We have to be encouraging our artists with their gifts and saying, praise God. Um, we, I want to see more paintings by Christians in the world. I want to see more sculptures by, by Christians in the world. I want to see more music that glorifies God. I want to see people using all of who they are and all that God has gifted them with for the glory of God. The church has to be at the forefront. I also want to see the church teaching and educating. Because right now, in our society anyway, the school system, it's teaching, yes, but it's also teaching philosophy behind the scenes. And the only way that your children are going to grow up and understand the world differently is if someone steps up and teaches. And that's the church's call. The church for hundreds of years, thousands of years, since the beginning, (laughs) has been one of education. Um, Why did Paul and Peter, what did they do? They went out and they taught. Um, At one point when they were having an issue in Acts, they brought up the problem of, okay, these women are not getting enough as these women. What did Peter decide? We're going to hire, we're going to make sure that there are people who are qualified who can disperse it properly so we don't have to deal with this. (laughs) And so that way they can teach. Because teaching for them was the most important function far more above anything else because when you teach people and they understand, it's going to change their life for the rest of their lives. Um, Now, does that mean that we don't get involved in, let's say, helping people? Obviously, we do. But um, teaching especially is an important one. Oh, that pretty much says it all. One one of the things that we're doing in, in adult Sunday school is we're confronting within the church... Um, we, we often view our role in society. We have a church-secular divide in our intellects. We tend to think of church, holy, righteous, outside of church, secular, unrighteous, no good. And I think we're in a very slow process of recognizing some of the error in our own thinking in that uh, our role is to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to advance the cause of Christ, and along the way we have to recognize that we are all on a pilgrim's journey, learning as we go, improving as we go, drawing closer to God. So... And we've got to remember, what is the church's role? Uh, I'll just close with this question. What, what's a church? Church is people. Church is us. So, that question should be rephrased. What is our role in society? Okay? And uh, I'll just leave it at that. Oh, Chris, i got a question. to not go to church because they can do it their way. It's just as selfish to go down to church 
and then go home and stay home all week long. It's the same difference. Church is not where you church, church is people. It's yeah. Not this, you do your thing in your journey in life, and that's that. We need to be in our communities because our communities aren't going to change for, towards God if we're not in there changing them. Yep. It, it won't just magically happen while we sit at home, glad that we went to church on Sunday. Yep. And that requires us raising Christian business owners. <laughs> and it requires us to, to be involved in our society in that way so that we're having Christians who are doing things again. Being in the schools, being in the businesses, Correct. being involved in the community events, volunteering, helping your neighbor down the street whether they go to church or not. Like, if we're just going home and calling it good because we feel safe and that feels good to us, we're doing it wrong. Yep, agreed. And, and again, it's our calling. Give all of your life to Jesus. What does that look like? All of your life. It looks like a lot more than just Sundays. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, we're yeah. done. For now, I mean, there's more questions here. We can either do them another time or whatever, but we're, we're two done. Two up. Okay. Well, then let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much um, that we're able to come together as a congregation and really wrestle with a lot of these hard questions that sometimes we're not sure about and sometimes we are sure about. And Lord, we thank you because you remind us that the most important gift is love. And love is what keeps us together. Love is what we'll say, we may disagree on this minor point, but we love you and we love each other and we're willing to walk hand in hand for the sake of Jesus, which is the most important thing. Um, So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to expand your love, that you would continue to overflow this love onto us so that we can overflow it onto each other and over the world. We thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for each other, for this body of believers whom we all love together. In your son's name we pray. Amen.